Welcome back to Historical Context. Today we continue our series on the colonies during the Commonwealth of England. Today's episode continues where we left off last week, and that is where the Commonwealth lays its eyes on Virginia. Last week's episode uh, concluded in August of 1650 when the Commonwealth placed an embargo on the colony of Virginia. And on September 19, 1650, the month after, Parliament passed an act prohibiting trade to Virginia, along with Barbados and Antigua, due to their, quote, rebellion against the Commonwealth and government of England. On October 3rd, the Parliament gave an order to ships at sea to enforce the no-trade law. So Parliament is putting its foot down on Virginia. Historian Wilcom Washburn, who I've read uh, since we've covered 1627, 1628 Virginia, he wrote a book on Virginia during Charles I and Oliver Cromwell. Uh, Wilcom Washburn captured a quote from Thomas Jefferson describing the significance of this event. Let's see what President Jefferson has to say. This succession to the exercise of the kingly authority gave the first color for parliamentary interference with the colonies and produced that fatal precedent which they continued to follow after they had retired in other respects within their proper functions. So President Jefferson, who collected a number of historical documents and studied American colonial history, sees this event as the start of the ultimate rift between the colonies in England. This is 126 years before the Declaration of Independence, but clearly Parliament is being heavy-handed here with Virginia. The Council of State would go on to grant special trade permissions to certain groups or individuals, and one group was the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and they were friendlier. They were Puritans. They were of a like mind, so it would make sense that they would get that privilege. In early 1651, the Virginia government receives the law passed by Parliament. In March, Governor Berkeley addresses the House of Burgesses. And as to the trade embargo, here's what he has to say. Let's have a look. Though it were but an assurance that we shall eat the bread for which our own oxen plow, and with our own sweat we reap. So Berkeley is prepared to allow Virginia to basically become self-sustaining on an economic level. Let's see what else he has to say in his speech. Again, this is considered uh, by many historians to be a significant speech for this era, so let's take a look at some other excerpts. If the whole current of their reasoning were not as ridiculous as their actions have been tyrannical and bloody, we might wonder with what brows they could sustain such impertinent assertions. They talk indeed of money laid out on this country in its infancy, 
I will not say how little nor how repaid, but will only ask, was it theirs? Surely, gentlemen, we are more slaves by nature than their power can make us if we suffer ourselves to be shaken with these paper bullets and those on my life are the heaviest they either can or will send us. Tis true with us, they have long threatened the Barbados, yet not a ship goes thither but to beg trade, nor will they do to us if we dare honorably resist their imperious ordinance. We can only fear the Londoners, who would fain bring us to the same poverty, but gentlemen, by the grace of God, we will not so tamely part with our king, and all these blessings we enjoy under him, and if they oppose us, do but follow me. I will either lead you to victory, or lose a life which I cannot more gloriously sacrifice, for by my loyalty and your security. So it sounds like William Berkeley will not be capitulating to the English government. The House of Burgesses, the Council, and the Governor then issue a joint statement. Let's take a look at what they say. We likewise see ourselves branded in it with the enigmous names of rebels and traitors which we so much abhor that we would detest ourselves if we thought they were deservedly imposed on us, and shall take leave to think we are unworthy slandered, till stronger proofs than we yet find are brought against us to convince our judgments and conscience that we are guilty of those horrid crimes. No power on earth can absolve or manumit us from our obedience to our prince and his lawful successors. Fourthly, we are told of usurping a government to ourselves. We wish we could transmit our records to the view of our accusers. By them it would appear how little we deserve this imputation. For since the beginning of the colony we have never innovated nor altered anything in the main of the government. But in case we had done it, what more likely patrons could we choose to protect us than those who accuse us? Therefore, on the whole matter we conclude, we are resolved to continue our allegiance to our most gracious king, yet as long as he graciously favor permits us, we will peaceably trade with the Londoners and all other nations in amity with our sovereign. So it sounds like a united front of defiance. And I have to wonder if I read those quotes in and of themselves to a focused group of people and said that they came from colonial America and asked them to guess which year it happened in. I don't think many would guess the year 1651. So it's interesting to see this division occurring, this allegiance to the king, and uh, what's it going to lead to? Well, the Council of State continues to issue its special permits to those traveling to Virginia, 
and begins appointing one commissioner at a time. In September 1651, the Council of State orders a fleet of ships to Virginia under the orders of, quote, reducing of Virginia to the obedience of the Commonwealth. The fleet did have the authority to operate by force if necessary. The four commissioners were named in the document. One of them was William Claiborne. We know him all too well. Richard Bennett, a Puritan in Virginia since 1629, was another one of the commissioners. So two of the four commissioners were already residing in Virginia, likely obviously not even knowing that they had been named. The Council of State authorized the granting of pardons to any individual in Virginia who agreed to submit themselves to the parliamentary rule. Captain Robert Dennis, who was one of the four commissioners, was also named the fleet's commander, so he was the highest-ranking uh, official on the fleet, and given sealed orders to be delivered to Richard Bennett upon his arrival. The fleet would arrive in January of 1652. While we don't have primary documents to guide this series of events, historian Wilkham Washburn did write about it. Washburn states that upon the fleet's arrival, Governor Berkeley raised an army of a thousand men to Jamestown to defend the colony. Furthermore, 500 natives promised aid and allegiance. Berkeley informed the colonists that if they submitted to the Parliament, they would be stripped of their land and forced to submit to the rule of those loyal to the new government. So Berkeley tells people, if you surrender, you're going to lose everything. The parliamentarians actually go so far as to circulate letters throughout the colony denying any of these intentions. On January 19th, the parliamentarians sent a request to the governor and council asking them to surrender. They were surprised when the response was not an outright denial. Berkeley and the council responded with various conditions. So it sounds like they're now moving in to a negotiating phase. Berkeley called an assembly and negotiations were formally initiated for the surrender of the colony. So it sounds like the temperature turned down quite quickly after the parliamentarians circulated those letters and kicked off negotiations. And maybe that letter campaign softened Governor Berkeley as well. In March of 1652, articles of submission were drafted. Among the concessions made by the parliamentarians were the privileges of the colonists to remain free people of England, so that's condition one, the Grand Assembly is to continue functioning, Condition 2. Immunity for words spoken against Parliament, Condition 3. And the establishment of trade and maintaining of land ownership, Condition number 4 there. Which is a pretty good deal for the colonists. They get to keep their land, their legislature, and they are immune for, I guess, cursing about Parliament. There were some other 
interesting concessions. Let's have a look at the writing. That Virginia shall be free from all taxes, customs, and impositions whatsoever, and none to be imposed on them without the consent of the Grand Assembly, and so that neither efforts nor castles be erected or garrisons maintained without their consent. No taxation without the express consent of the Virginia Assembly, and no military infrastructure without their consent either. Obviously, this issue is going to come up later, as we know. The council and the governor did not have to take the oaths of the Commonwealth for one year, and they were given the opportunity to sell their assets and move to either England or Holland. The group agreed that Commissioner Richard Bennett would serve as the governor until more specific instructions came from England. And this is a pretty good compromise. Richard Bennett has been there for more than 20 years. He's a Puritan aligned with the parliamentarians, almost like a William Stone kind of situation, only apparently the English seem to be more on board with this. The article still needed to be returned to England and approved by the Parliament. It ends up being approved by the Council of State later that year, and while I didn't see any writing about the Parliament approving it, I'm presuming it is approved. The Assembly voted for Richard Bennett as governor on April 30, 1652. So Richard Bennett, now the governor of Virginia. Laws were passed in May of 1652 to preserve the selection of the House of Burgesses, the governor's council, and the laws that were passed by each. So the civil legal structure of Virginia is being preserved here. The issue of taxation came about again that month, but in a different way. The residents of Northampton uh, appealed to the Burgesses that they did not have the authority to tax them. So this is interesting. I mean, this is Northampton is, is just a, a, a northern part of the Virginia colony. And the reason was because they had only sent one Burgess to serve in the assembly in the last five years. They asked for independence, but instead they were granted the ability to craft their own laws. So they were given some municipal authority. So now Virginia is under submission. And with that, attention is immediately turned towards Maryland. In fact, in the writing, uh, some of the commissioners, William Claiborne being one of them, actually say, we need to take care of Maryland now. And they get anxious to get that colony under parliamentary submission. And so Maryland becomes our focus next time on Historical Context. <laughs>